0: Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and when it comes to the midterm elections, nobody knows anything. So don't believe the sweeping conclusions you're reading, the talk about trends and breathless reports of big swings in the polls. Even Nate Cohn in the New York Times, not someone I'm normally prone to be uh, quoting, but he comments in his piece on analyzing the Senate races. He said, quote, the absence of surveys from reputable pollsters is remarkable. And I think that's an accurate statement in terms of nobody knows anything. And so on today's pod, we'll take an objective look about what is and isn't known and share what we think you should focus on in the final days of this election season. And, spoiler alert, the answer to almost all the questions is voter turnout will be decisive. As you may have heard, the Confederates have never stopped fighting the Civil War. America is basically divided, and whichever side does a better job of getting voters to the polls will win in the midterms. And speaking of the ongoing Civil War, I just want to take a minute to thank everyone who helped out with the book launch for my book, How We Win the Civil War. It was quite a whirlwind, it's inspiring, humbling, and a gratifying experience to be in conversation with so many people on so many platforms. And it really capped off what was basically the past three years of my life, writing the book and then working towards the launch and getting it out into the world. And I'm just deeply, deeply grateful to everyone who helped us get the word out about the launch, bought the book, shared the news with their friends and family. We are launched, and we have big plans for where we go from here, so stay tuned. And speaking of people who helped with the launch, I'm joined today on this podcast by two core partners, my podcast host, Charlene Chang, who's been on this book writing and editing journey through two books now over eight years, and by Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega, our resident data doctor make sure all the numbers add up and gives me and us the ammunition to fight the fights in these battles where data and numbers are often used against us. And as we say in the book, we are winning, and data-driven plans are key to that. And Julie's been an indispensable partner in that struggle. So Julie and Charlene, how are you both? Did you survive Halloween? And shall we discuss the midterms?
1: Hey, Steve. I have officially survived Halloween. I feel like just barely Uh, By the way, when I get a chance, I am going to officially lobby somebody. I don't know who I need to talk to, but Halloween should never be on a Monday. It is like cruel and unusual punishment for a parents and kids. You know, it's like the beginning of the week kids are tr- scrambling to like get their selves together for Halloween. And then uh, those of us parents who are working, it's suddenly like you're on, you know, the, one of the busiest days of the week and you're like, okay, I got to transition into like helping with costume. In my case, getting my own costume together, getting stuff ready for the trick-or-treaters will be coming to your door and then getting your own little trick-or-treater all already. Um, but it was super fun. And it was a little rough afterwards because it was uh, a late night, but we it was another great Halloween lots of sugar. I also just wanted wanted to thank you for your kind words, Steve. And I also just wanted to give a big shout out to all of our listeners in particular for all that all of you did in helping us get the word out about the book, how we win the civil war. Like you said, Steve, it takes uh, three years to put the book together. And then you get this sort of relatively by comparison, narrow window to get the word out. And so every it's kind of like every vote counts, every person who buys a book, counts every person who spreads the word word of mouth or posts on social media accounts. And so for all of you listening, please do continue to spread the word, post Amazon reviews. If you have a copy and you liked it, please post a review on Amazon and other places like Goodreads and please continue to support the book.
0: And Julie, how was your first Halloween with a child in college? <laughs>
2: Well, it was really strange, because I usually am super busy, as Charlene was saying, on Halloween night, or well, usually the night before that, because that's when the final decision gets made on whatever Carlos is wanting to be that year. (laughs) So there's a scramble to to get all the little costume stuff together and do the hair, the makeup, the whole craziness of it all. So it was, it was strange not having that, but you know, it's, it's also, you know, every year when Halloween's right before an election, (laughs) there's also this thing of you're so busy with everything else that, um, it was kind of good totally. to have that in, Right, <laughs> had a little bit of extra right, time well, this year yes. because he's he's far away at school. Right. But um, and of then things today to be is scared of right? Yeah. yeah. So today is actually uh, Day of the Dead, Day of the Los Muertos. So it the the celebrations continue uh, over here on my end. So
1: wonderful. Okay. So for today's episode, I'm really looking forward to talking to both of you. And Julie, as always, so, so happy to be in conversation with you. I miss you all the time. Okay. So I'm super excited to talk to both of you today. This is one of my favorite episodes of the year where we get to talk about what's coming up and what we should pay attention to for election day. What I'm looking forward to is asking you about the one big thing, the one big thing we should be paying attention to. In each of the following races, talking House races, Senate races and governor's races, as we all know, midterms are just a few days away. When this episode comes out, it will only be five days away. Early voting is already happening. And especially in Georgia, apparently they're having record smashing numbers of early turnout. Next Tuesday, again, November 8th is Election Day. Uh, In case people didn't get the memo, it'll be the final day to vote. And Steve and Julie, I cannot tell you how many people have been coming to me, either texting or when I see them in person saying, what do you guys think is going to happen? You know, uh, people are a bit freaked out. They're trying to gauge by reading news articles and listening to news reports and scanning the Internet and social media, trying to figure out what's going to happen. So, Steve, I wanted to ask you first, can you frame up and provide us with an overview on how we should be thinking about this year's elections?
0: Yeah, and it's it's maddening to read all this stuff. And then I try to actually stay away from getting too caught up in all of the daily back and forth. And it is it is quite uh, nerve wracking as well. And so it obscures the larger reality. And it's quite incredible how wrong most of the analysis is and how incorrect the framework is. And I guess, you know, human beings love stories and storytelling, and that's been a longstanding reality. And so the media is completely tied up with this trying to tell a compelling narrative, regardless what the underlying facts are. It's like, oh, inflation is up, so everybody's flipping over here, and oh, Biden's numbers are down, therefore that means this and that. And it's all incorrect. Fundamentally, there are more voters in the country who support the Democrats and support the Republicans. Writ large, the largest turnout, the best data sets we have are presidential elections. those the highest amounts of turnout. That's the best indication of what the the preferences of the voters are. Every presidential election since 1992, with the sole exception of 2004, the Democratic nominee has gotten more votes than a Republican. So that's a pretty compelling long-term data set showing that when... You have this contest where the national referendum takes place. Most people support the Democrats, and so that's the fundamental reality that affects the midterm elections. But people, that's not as good a narrative. And so it's like, oh no, it's a rejection of this policy, or you know, snap back over here, etc. But that's not actually what happens. All all that takes place in the midterms is how many people turn out to vote from the respective. Coalitions that make up the, the the politics in this country. Do the Democrats get a, do a good enough job of turning out their voters, or the Republicans do a better job, and the Republicans do a better job of suppressing the Democratic vote? That's the fundamental reality, and so this is what I you know try to lay out in my book. Uh, where I talk about how we win the Civil War. Confederates have never stopped fighting. This remains a contest in this country between those who want this to primarily be a country run by whites for whites, and those who want a multiracial democracy. Ron Brownstein, writer for The Atlantic, CNN, prior podcast guest, he's framed it up as the coalition of transformation, which with you know, he framed it up as the Obama coalition versus coalition of Restoration, the MAGA, or I call it MAWA, make America white again crowd. That's the fundamental battle, which, and that's what's going to shape the elections. Who's going to do a better job of turnout? So- as we look at all, all of these midterm elections, have that's what the issue has been, but that hasn't been the narrative. 2010, 2014, 2018, people keep saying like, oh, 2010, the Democrats lost because there was a backlash against Obama and, and, and the healthcare initiatives. That's not at all what happened. People were complacent. Democratic vote dropped dramatically, and that's how the Republicans won. So that's the overarching dominant reality that I think we have to all internalize and grasp. And that's the way to look at the midterms. That's the we look at what we need to do. It's to do everything we can to maximize the turnout. And that's the way to understand what happens, whatever happens. I can assure you that it's going to be a reflection of which side did a better job of getting its people to the polls. So I just think that that's the overarching theme that we have to hold to. And it helps to explain and make sense of what is going to happen in the midterms, and it really is going to help to make sense in terms of what the imperatives are to do going forward after the election.
1: Okay, and with that, let's take a close look at the House races. If you're listening and you've subscribed to the Democracy in Color newsletter, then you likely know about our "How to Hold the House" series. If not, I really encourage you to check it out on our blog. Again, that's on the Democracy and Color website, and. While you're there, go ahead and subscribe to our newsletter so that you don't miss any great content. Steve and Julie have been highlighting one district a week for the last two months on our blog in this How to Hold the House series, and it's just fantastic. I have gotten so much out of it. It's really beautifully designed. There's awesome, easy-to-read graphics that really tell compelling stories about what's happening in these districts, as well as uh, just very... Concise a synopsis, like snapshots of what's happening in these districts. It's been really insightful and informative. And I uh, just, you know, can see how much potential Democrats have on election day through the series. So, Julie, can you give us a big picture overview of how the House races are shaping out and what should we be expecting? And what is that one big thing to watch when it comes to House races this year?
2: So, I think the thing to keep in mind is sort of where's the current balance of power and what it's going to take to shift that, right? Which would mean Pelosi no longer being the speaker. Going into Tuesday, election day. So Republicans start out with 213 districts that they currently control. They would need to add five more seats and get to 218 to be able to have a majority in the House of 435 seats. Now, the reality is that Biden won just two years ago, 226 of the congressional districts nationally. So for Republicans to be able to increase their vote share, and they're going to have to be winning districts that Biden won just two years ago. And that's going to be a lot more difficult than I think people in the mainstream media are making it out to be. So the one big thing is California, right? There is no state in the country that is more central to the outcome on Tuesday night for the House. There are a number of seats that, as Charlene mentioned, we've featured in the blog that we've been doing over the past five, six weeks that are located in California. And in fact, I think the majority we discussed in our blog were in California because there's actually a great deal of possibility in terms of Democrats being able to flip seats blue. So to the degree that Republicans might be able to get some flips into their column, Democrats actually have even more opportunities in California and across the country and other places. But California is really rich with some great opportunities for Democrats going into this Tuesday. One big thing to watch are the 10 races that are there in California. There are five seats right now in California currently held by Republicans that could go and look to be very real possibilities of going blue on Tuesday. And a number of those seats were actually just recently taken from Democrats. So it's not as though these are in very deep red uh, districts. And when you couple that with the fact that there's been massive redistricting happening in a number of places across California for the congressional districts, there's just an incredible amount of opportunity there. This would obviously really expand the Democratic cushion if we could flip these seats uh, so that if the Republicans are successful elsewhere, there would be enough seats in California that are that switch to blue to be able to cover that that difference and still be able to maintain Democratic control of the House. So. In our blog, we covered five districts in California and go into some level of detail there. And like Charlene said, there's a lot of um, information there just about underlying demographic numbers and how the seats lean in terms of partisanship. So those are California 22, which is currently held by Valadao, the 27 held by Garcia, Mike Garcia, California 40 held by Kim, the 41 held currently by Calvert and the California 45, which is held by Steele. And all of those are, uh, you know, according to the analysis that we did, really up for grabs. Steve, just to remind listeners,
1: and for those who don't already know this, you and Julie created the new majority Index, which was launched for the first time in August. And I was wondering if you can just remind everyone what the new majority index is, why you created it, and what other races the index has flagged that we should all be watching
0: right so what, what i feel like in some ways i'm kind of doing this with julie i'm going to be exposed as the front person behind the person who's actually done all the work and so julie <laughs> did this uh you know um herculean task of identifying all these data sets across the country for every single congressional district and then cross-referencing who has the data who has the census data who has the election results etc so the new american majority index is that we created It's the country's first and only election prediction system that explicitly incorporates and looks at racial data. And everything else out there is race neutral and does not factor in race, which even setting aside the historical sociological points, just from a data and a statistical standpoint, is an incredibly important data point, right? Uh, Nearly 90% of African-Americans have always voted Democratic. You lose the exit polls going back to 1976. And 40% of whites vote Democratic. So that's a gargantuan uh, racial voting gap. And so then to not incorporate that to your election analyses around what the potential is for outcomes, I think is really a shortcoming. So that's why we created the NMI. And so we do what the other places like Cook Political Report do. We look at past presidential results within a congressional district to see how it's performed. But we add in the racial data. We look at how racially diverse it is and what the racial turnout has been by racial group. And that shows a different picture in terms of what has more potential. And it shows it's the type of analysis that led us to understand and Biden to not understand that Georgia was flippable in 2020 and 2021. And so when you incorporate that analysis and there are additional seats that Julie mentioned, there are 20 Republican held seats that Democrats could flip with high turnout and by raising the turnout of voters of color. And so we identify those in the in the new majority index and I find it new com. And so that's another indication and element that with strong turnout, that the Democrats really can, if not, should be able to hold the House.
1: And Julie, what other districts outside of California should people be looking at?
2: Well, in the blogs that we've been talking about, we highlighted two specific districts, Arizona 1 and Ohio 1. Those are both seats held by incumbents who've been there for decades. And they both have some massive redistricting line movement as far as uh, where the districts are actually physically located on the map, you know, that they've been drawn to the detriment of the incumbents for various reasons. And those are places of that the Republican really Republican incumbents of the, the right. Yes. Those are both Republicans. That's uh Chabot in Ohio and Schweikert in Arizona. And Schweikert's got a, a young African-American, very charismatic challenger, Jevin Hodge, And Landsman is really uh, doing a great job of challenging Chabot as well as uh, raising a lot of funds. Okay, let's turn to the Senate on the
1: Democracy in Color blog back in July. Last year, staff writer Fola Onifade highlighted some of the key races for Democrats to hold the chamber. Steve, can you give us a recap of what states you're paying attention to when it comes to Senate races and why? And what's the one big thing to watch when it comes to Senate races this election cycle? So
0: the Senate. there's two big questions, and then one big thing to watch. So the two big questions in terms of the Senate. First are, can the Democrats hold their current majority? Can they defend all of the incumbents? And if they do do that, then Democrats will continue to control the Senate. And so that's the threshold dominant question. And then the second question is, can they expand the majority? And then if we expand the majority, then you reduce the influence and leverage of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema in terms of them impeding the rest of the social justice agenda. So in terms of holding the majority, the one big question, at least the biggest question, I think, is in Nevada with Catherine Cortez Masto, who's the incumbent who is defending her seat. And the polling in that race is very close. And and, and, and it's always very close there. the presidential races, the statewide races, but they do tend to tip towards the Democrats, but it's always been very tenuous and you know nerve-wracking. In terms of expanding the majority, it's the constellation of, there's four races, three black candidates and one tall, tattooed white dude. The black candidates are Mandela Barnes running in Wisconsin, Sherry Beasley in North Carolina, and Val Demings in Florida. And then the tall, tattooed white dude is John Fetterman running in the Pennsylvania Senate race against Dr. Oz. So that's kind of the constellation of what the overview looks like. And I was saying, again, the big, the biggest key race is the Nevada one, because that's the incumbent that people tend to feel is most vulnerable um, among
2: the Democrats. So, Julie, how do those races look right now? So it's going to be critical for Senator Warnock to hold his seat. And so far, he's on track to, to do that. He's actually performing really well in the polling. He had a good night in his most recent debate. And so far, so good there. As far as Wisconsin's concerned, The polling on Barnes in Wisconsin is a bit ambiguous right now. There's one poll out showing Johnson leading 52 to 46 against Barnes, but a more recent CNN poll shows that registered voters, at least that's among registered voters, not necessarily likely voters, that they favor Barnes by a full five points. So. That one, I think, is definitely a, a winnable race if turnout is as high as people are working to make it be. Over in North Carolina, Sherry Beasley is also polling really well. She's neck and neck right now. She's got just a one point one percent margin going against her, which is well within the margin of error. So it's it's anybody's race at this point as far as polling is concerned. And keep in mind that there. Sherry Beasley lost in 2020 by a mere 400 votes. So she's already a proven candidate in that state. And there's a real possibility that she's going to be able to pull this off. So in Nevada, which is um, obviously a race that's got a ton of eyes on it right now, Masto is tied as of a week ago on the CBS UGov poll with 47 to 47. There's another poll out that shows her with a 52% lead. And that's from the University of Nevada, Reno. So, you know, some real difference there and what the various polls are, are indicating, but we wouldn't have wanted her to be so close, but she's definitely, you know, she's in a position to be able to pull this off. Now over in Pennsylvania, Ah, uh, five thirty-eight has on its polling average, Fetterman up by one percentage point. And now that's post debate, and uh, you know there was a lot of talk about how the public perceived Fetterman and his strength and ability to uh, to really lead given the health issues. But definitely from that polling, it it seems to be that voters are comfortable with Fetterman, and many are obviously having issues with Oz.
0: Yeah, and people weren't following. Fetterman had a stroke earlier in the summer. And then there was one of his first public appearances was this debate that was very recent and that you could see the effects of the stroke in terms of his, you know, processing time and his, you know, speaking. And so there's a real question about how the voters would interpret that. But so far, it seems to be holding in terms of his strength there. So, and I would just add that, again, this all comes down to voter turnout. Right. And then also in the looking at the Florida race, right, that and you know people continue to feel like, oh, we keep you know losing by close amount in Florida, which we do. But that obscures the realities and the imperative for voter turnout. right? So Trump won Florida in, in 2020 by about 300,000 votes in that same election. There were three million eligible non-voting people of color. So, again, comes on turnout. Um, and again, so Ron Brownstein had these tweets this week looking at the polls that just came out. And he was commenting, so the Senate polls show the relative stability of the Democratic coalition gives the party a thin pathway to hold the Senate, that uh, nobody's out of the woods, but in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, the Democrats are holding just enough of the anti-Trump coalition to lead or stay even. So again, voter turnout is what's going to determine the outcome of the midterms. It'll control who controls the Senate, and it'll control the margin in the Senate.
1: Okay. Okay, so before we wrap things up, let's talk about the key governor's races that we're watching. Of course, all eyes are on Stacey Abrams' rematch against Brian Kemp. So many of us, and I I know I'm speaking for myself, have been following this race and the dynamics between these two candidates Uh, leading up to this moment. It just feels like we've been following this for years. And here we are. Election Day is around the corner. How is this race playing out, Steve, and what do you think will happen?
0: Well, it's going to be incredibly close, and it's been very, very stressful to follow along. And, you know, I do devote a fair amount of attention in my book to the mountain we're trying to climb in Georgia. And and there's a reason why this country has never had a Black woman governor. it's not because we have not had talented Black women. The obstacles are formidable, in terms of the attitudes, in terms of what we think leadership looks like, in terms of all these latent biases and whatnot, on top of all of those oppression and everything else. But I do, I do think this is actually one of the most important races in the country long term. Because if we are in fact able to make the breakthrough in Georgia, the long-term implications in terms of strategy and reconfiguring the political balance of power in America are enormous. Because it will prove that if we can do this in Georgia, We can also do it in Texas. We can do it in Florida. We can do it in North Carolina in terms of those gubernatorial elections. And so these places, which were the actual Confederacy and were actually part of Mexico prior to being taken by this country and where the vast majority of people of color actually live in this country, will comprise the cornerstones of a new progressive uh, electoral majority in America. And so... The implications are enormous, which is why it's been so incredibly stressful in terms of tracking it, and it's it's the headwinds have been strong and it's been very difficult. And I was thinking about it today, and people keep people keep, these reporters keep calling me and saying, "Well, how come you know Warnock seems to be doing a bit better than Abrams is doing? How do you describe that, et cetera?" And as I was thinking about that, we talked about we had Greg Bluestein from the uh, Atlanta Journal Constitution on the podcast uh, back in the spring, and he was talking about Herschel Walker. The candidate there, I don't know. I don't. I don't think this is hyperbolic. I don't know if I know of another candidate for United States Senate who was this competitive, who was this absurdly unqualified, and under any objective evaluation of who should be in the Senate, nobody would be saying Herschel Walker. If we had an objective, non-Confederate electorate only looking at who should be our senators. Walker would be getting like 1% of the polls. This is a man who's not been involved in government. He has no interest in public life for decades. Nothing to suggest that he would even care about public policy. And then you add on to that his domestic violence track record, holding a gun to his wife's head, his abject uh, hypocrisy and moralizing him Multiple uh, fathered, multiple out of wedlock births where well, he hasn't even taken care of the children. And he's paid for multiple abortions while being so supposedly anti abortionist. And yet he still got like 45, 46% in the polls. As a black man, it's an embarrassment and a joke that people are actually taking a look at this. And he's running against the successor to Martin Luther King. So the whole, as you can see, I'm quite, I, in my feelings about this, but I believe what it shows is it's very telling about the electorate in this country and in Georgia, and that's what is the major takeaway. It's not even about Stacey's relative strength, even Warnock's relative strength. It's what the voters are willing to accept to block their being the literal successor to Martin Luther King or the country's first black woman becoming the governor. So there's a lot of we are up against, and that's why it's so significant, because we can actually make this breakthrough. And I think that there are m- many signs of encouragement in terms of look at these early voting numbers. And I think that uh, Julie may have some stuff on that. But I just wanted to frame that up, that the election is very fraught and intense and stressful. We have to look at it in the proper historical context in terms of be able to appreciate the dynamics of what's taking place right now.
1: And with that, Julie, I wanted to check with you. What do the polls show about where things stand in Georgia right now?
2: Well, Steve's absolutely right that you really need that full context, the historic context, to be able to even understand what the polls mean. So, right now, it's a super tight race for for Stacey. It's in the single digits, right? Kemp is is leading, but what does that really mean, right? If the so, there's a bunch of things that influence what the polls are going to be indicating a week out, right? There's what the pollsters think are the people who are going to show up on election day, what that demographic profile is of those people. Will African-Americans outperform their own high performance levels in terms of turnout from prior years? We'll see. I know that there are just the insights that we have from you know friends who are in the campaign and who are out there in Georgia doing all sorts of things to really increase African-American turnout. There is actually incredible excitement and enthusiasm among those voters. It, it helps a lot to have two major races on the ticket simultaneously, right? So the Warnock race, Herschel Walker making it much more exciting, quote unquote, than it normally would be, and the governor's race with Stacey Abrams out there. I mean, it, there's just a lot of energy, a lot of momentum. So, you know, yes, it's tight. Yes, there's single digit leads for Kemp, but I think we need to take a step back. Meanwhile, you know, we are having groups like 538 out there hedging their bets, I feel, um, basically with their headlines. I don't know if it was today or yesterday. You know, what happened to Stacey Abrams as though, oh, my gosh, she's fallen apart. This just didn't turn out to be what anyone thought. She had all this great promise. And yet here we are. And it's, it's really... Um, I don't know. Like I said, I feel like it's hedging their bets because it's easier to say she won't win than to put yourself out there and say things are lined up for there to be a a big win come Tuesday, right? It's going to take a whole lot of work. And I think people have actually done that work. So I, I don't know. I'm actually pretty excited about the possibilities for, you know, waking up on Wednesday morning, as far as that's concerned. Now, in the absence of a of a win on Tuesday, if she keeps Kemp below fifty percent, right, so forty nine point nine nine percent, Kemp, that will force a runoff, and so that will create a situation similar to what Warnock and Ossoff had this last go round, where they were sort of the you know marquee thing happening all by themselves with the full national attention. Uh, An interest on that race, so I think that would actually probably in to to uh, Stacy's benefit.
0: Yeah, and then just to drive home this point about its turnout, it's a turnout machine. That's how Biden won Georgia. That's how Warnock and mm-hmm. also won. And then that machine is doing the early vote turnout now in Georgia, and so there is record-setting turnout. Right, 1.63 million people have already voted in Georgia, and this is 36 percent higher than the turnout in the 2008 midterm in this level. So. That is an encouraging sign, but it's still going to be a anxious several days.
1: Steve, what other races at the state level will you be really paying attention to and that the rest of us should really be watching?
0: So I would, I would say three three things quickly. So one is the gubernatorial election uh, oh, in the South and Southwest. We talked about Georgia, obviously, but then also in Arizona. That's a very critical gubernatorial election. When Katie Hobbs was running the Democratic nominee there, and that's going to be an important period. But also in terms of again, we all of this is about trying to prepare for the the attempted coming coup in twenty twenty four, and so who where are going to be our uh, bastions of defense against that? And so Arizona was critical in twenty twenty. We have the governor's office there. That'll be a huge situation there. And we have a chance, I think a good chance to to take that seat. There's also this constellation in that context of defending the election 2024 of the Midwestern governor's offices that we currently have, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Holding those seats in those reelection pieces is going to be critical again in terms of the coming 2024 battle. And then people should not sleep on Texas that the majority of people in Texas, the majority of voters in Texas, eligible voters are people of color. And so Beto O'Rourke is not off of the table that he could actually win. But even if he doesn't, the foundation he's been laying, seeing how close we're getting to putting in place the pieces there. So Texas is going to be critical. And then lastly, there are a number of Secretary of State's races. So this whole insurrectionist coup election denying movement is trying to take over Secretary of State's offices to stop the counting of votes in true Confederate fashion. So there's two particular races, I think, there um, that are important to pay attention to Adrian Fontes running in Arizona, the Democratic nominee for uh, a Secretary of State in Arizona, and then Bean Nguyen, former podcast uh, guest, is uh, running in Georgia um, to be the Secretary of State there.
1: Well, we're down to the wire here. By the next episode, we will have closed out another election season, and we will know a little bit more about the direction of our democracy. Steve, what can listeners do Right now, in this ever shrinking window before election day, in this home stretch,
0: fundamentally, to close it off with the theme we opened up with, support getting out the vote. And so, we'll put some links in the show notes of our groups and places that people can support in these final few days. Um, but there's a whole network in California at the California Donor Table has um, supported and um, seated and invested in and of groups who are doing work in the congressional races that uh, um, Julie was talking about in Arizona. There's a coalition, Arizona Wins, which is doing the voter turnout work there. Stacey's campaign itself in Georgia is really the anchor for all of the voter turnout work that's happening there. And then in Wisconsin, um, Power Pack is doing a lot of voter turnout work of infrequent voters that could be supported, that could make the marginal difference
1: there. That's a lot of great options. So I hope everybody heard that or rewind the last few seconds to catch all those um, ways that you can get involved and help make a difference in these last few days. And I, for one, I just feel, I feel overall probably more hopeful than I did before I started the episode in terms of, you know, where we might be come this time next week. And we shall see. And regardless, as you always say, uh, Steve and Julie, you do too. I know um, regardless of what happens, the work continues. And then next we will be on to looking at 2024.
0: That's right. The work continues apace. And um, no, no podcast would be complete without a Jesse Jackson reference. And I was thinking about the midterms in this context back when, uh 1984 Democratic convention after the nomination had taken place, Jesse gathered all his supporters together and he put the, you know, him not getting the nomination in context. And he says, we've never gotten freedom at a convention. The convention is a comma where we pause and go on. We'll keep fighting for freedom in the courts, at the polls, in the community, freedom by any means necessary. And that has stayed with me for 40 years. The midterms are a comma and we'll pause and we'll go right on and we need to be secure in the co- and confident in the knowledge that we do in fact have the majority, regardless of what the midterm elections show, and we we double our efforts to manifest that majority heading towards 2024. So that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, Charlene and Julie, for joining us and sharing and sharing those insights. Thank you, listeners, for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy in Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production. Produced by Olivia Parker, with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkir. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Thank you again for all those who helped with the book launch. Until next time, get out the vote and keep the faith.